they first loaded it up, they did the 1500 tube load. And they brought the power level up to about 9 megawatts and held it there while they checked to make sure all the instrumentation was responding properly and do other things because this is the first startup. You know, you want to make sure everything goes smoothly. And the operator here started removing control rods because the power level was going down. And he started removing more. And he took all nine control rods completely out of the reactor and the reactor shut itself down. And it's like, oh. Now fortunately, they didn't put the rods back in because by this time they are suspicious that there is something stealing neutrons. And about eight or nine hours later, the reactor started up all by itself. That's pretty cool. So it cycled, it would shut itself down and start itself up. Oh. And it turned out that one of the fission products produced in very large quantities Iodine-135 was decaying with about a nine-hour half-life into Xenon-135, which absorbs neutrons way better than the uranium does, the boron in the balls does, the boron in the control rods does, and it was stealing all... Story in the news today. You believe in ghosts and the paranormal? or are they like some crazy experimental, you know, governmental, I don't know, planes that they're building? And police in Española are catching more than just criminals. They're catching images of what they believe are ghosts. There's this weird animal-like creature that was shot, wolf-like creature that just stood out in some odd ways. And welcome to Strange Uncles. I'm Shane. I'm Josh. Man, oh man, I know I don't want to be like a weather forecaster here all the fucking time, but dude, it's supposed to be hot as fuck next week here, and I am not looking forward to it. Holy shit. Like 104. Yeah, you've, you've gotten our heat. Actually, when, when the uh, listeners hear this, it'll probably, you'll be in, you'll be coming out of it. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we're, we're actually dropping part two here, record earlier. But, uh, yeah, it, next week is, and like I said, the house kind of holds its own. But it just, man, it makes you not want to do anything. It makes you not want to go anywhere. It, it just, that nah, sucks. It sucks. I'm not yeah, a huge fan. As, so. as we like to say, fucking gross. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Fair, very fair enough. Yeah, usually you guys get it over there. Usually we are okay. But, man, oh, man, you know, we'll, we'll see yeah, what goes it, on. Yeah, the heat broke a week or two ago and it got really nice for a little bit it's starting to get warm again but it's you know under 100 so yeah well and that's good for you guys for sure but anyway well welcome to strange uncles everybody uh this is part two of the manhattan project if you i'm assuming we're both assuming you listen to part one uh and we'll go from there and like we covered in the in the last one you know, we, we had, so I was able to tour the Hanford site, which again, I'll try not to inundate you as much as I think we did with part one. So sorry for that, folks. But just, just a lot of stuff, a lot of uh, like inside things that I didn't know that I saw. And, um, you know, and again, we talked about Oppenheimer. If you haven't saw it, go see it. It, it number one, and we talked about this in the group chat, man. Anything Nolan does, my God, that guy, holy shit. I can't, there's not a bad movie that I know that he has done. That I can think now of. I kind of want to like pull up his IMDb page and just go see. through. There's got to be a bad one. <laughs> There's got to be gotta one be. or two. I, none comes up. Even the Batman series was awesome. Uh, Tenet was amazing. You know, a little confusing, but amazing. You know, I think we were talking in the group chat that, okay, what you know about time travel, what you think you know, fuck it, throw that out the window because that Dunkirk was great. <laughs> oh, Dunkirk. There you go. Inception was Dunkirk. great. Oh, he did do Inception. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. it's, there's his, a bunch, his theory, bunch his, of like credits for him in here and like the dumb Justice League bullshit, but oh well, I think yeah, he was just like a producer or something on that. Yeah, yeah. producer. Yeah. Um, I will say it was, and, and uh, not to sound like a pervert, but I and I don't want to come off like this. But number one, there was a gal. I want to say her name, Florence Pugh. Is that right? Yeah. Um, actress been around, you know, she's kind of recent in Hollywood for the most part. She plays a, um, and again, not giving anything away, but she plays basically a girl that he knows that, you know, he has sex with here and there and she's not all there anyway. Um, but it's, it's weird because it's so how he did the movie. There's so again, it's about Oppenheimer. It's about the atomic bomb. It's about this. And you would think how they do the background, how they have everything. And then he wedges these, scenes like there's one scene that after they get done having sex Oppenheimer and this this uh, gal they're like literally sitting there naked and it's not just her sitting there naked and they're just having this casual chat they're talking about um like feelings and what he wants to get out of life it wasn't anything about the bomb or anything it was just as wait weird. like real people well yeah exactly like real people in a movie that never fucking happens. <laughs> that's not what yeah, I go yeah. to movies for <laughs> no not at all but they were just having this conversation and of course you know you, you have you know Hollywood the women are usually the ones with the, with the boobs out first, right? Not the guys. But then they scan over, and here's Oppenheimer sitting there in the chair with his legs crossed, buck naked too. Which uh, uh, Killian Murphy is the actor that plays Oppenheimer. And yeah, I was promised hog. Uh, was there <laughs> yeah. was there hog in the movie? It is. Uh, you, drunk? you know what? I, I might have blinked. Yeah, if I didn't see it, so I might have blinked if I didn't catch it. But uh, you know, I don't remember seeing it. But yeah, to, to each your own. Uh, but it was just such a. I, I want to say a, a very well presented artsy part. There's scenes like that in Oppenheimer that you do wouldn't think they would fit, but they fit well. Right? If that it's makes sense, it's not just all mushroom clouds. And, yeah, uh, yeah, it's not all shit shaking and noise and stuff like that. And then they go into the actual um, like when they do the bomb again. Not giving anything away. Guess what, everybody? It's about the bomb. But when they do it, and people don't realize the fact of a nuclear weapon when it goes off, you hear nothing. Like you don't hear initially that explosion and then you know the mushroom cloud everything after that mushroom cloud is where that then things start to implode and then that and how he filmed the scene when they dropped the trinity the trinity test the trinity bomb in uh, new mexico genius just fucking genius and so yeah yeah like i said go see it It, it's amazing not giving away anything but you know yeah it's it focuses around oppenheimer but uh there's so many other things around it and a lot of the Jewish scientists that were involved with it mainly because you know obviously they were up, you know Hitler's burning them right and left and what you know what are they like there's different aspects of the film that they, he really dug into that made it very surreal and very um emotional at times I guess you know so anyway my critic review yeah, well, I hear it's a good movie yeah here's Siskel Ebert so anyway um, but we are going to, we're cover- more like the old dudes at the Muppets <laughs> you go up in the balcony, Statler and Waldorf. <laughs> I, I never remember their names, but I love those two. But we, uh, so we covered obviously the very beginning. We covered some of the history of, of nuclear fission in general, how it took place theoretically. And now we're into bombs. Now we're into, okay, now we're in the Manhattan project. We covered, um, Oak Ridge, right? I believe if I remember, yeah. uh, amazing how quick that town went, but keep in mind, there's hundreds of different sites, but there's two other towns that were the main sites for this. And, uh, the other one is going to be Los Alamos. I think we're going to cover that. I'll let you kick that off and we're going to roll yeah. into part two. project workers built enduring communities that are still thriving today. They also achieve profound innovations in science and technology that forever change the world. 
and created complex new problems, including the environmental consequences of the Manhattan Project. Using the same drive, dedication, human ingenuity, and political will that contributed to the success of the Manhattan Project, we too can find solutions to the complex problems we face today, including the unintended consequences and legacies of the Manhattan Project. All right, so on April 1st, 1943, the United States established a research laboratory in the mountains of New Mexico. In the paperwork, it was referred to as Project Y and administered by the University of California. Project Y was the designation for the top secret design and production of the for atomic bombs for the Manhattan Project. Uh, Groves, director, again, Major General Leslie Groves, uh, who was the military guy in charge of the whole project. Uh, he was uh, director of the Manhattan Project and chose uh, Robert Oppenheimer, a theoretical physicist, to lead the project at Los Alamos because the headquarters of uh, sorts for designing the bomb. Oh, sorry, became the headquarters of sorts oh. for designing the bomb. I was like, that doesn't make any sense because, <laughs> but sorry, sometimes I can't read. Um, let's see. With Oak Ridge already underway and doing their thing, Oppenheimer had a ranch in Albuquerque and suggested they consider a site in New Mexico. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, they felt that the Sangre de Cristo mountains were remote enough and that they could build a secret town there where scientists and their families could live. And in November of uh, 42, Groves and Oppenheimer agreed that would be the place. Using close to 46,000 acres, including uh, roads and the right of way for power lines purchased at a cost of $415,000. So, you know getting close to the uh, median yep. home price in Salt Lake. Um, <laughs> all but 8,900 acres of which were re- uh, already owned by the federal government. So there oh. they didn't have to deal with what we were talking about earlier with yep. like uh, the land grabs and all that bullshit. Cantankerous ranchers. And, <laughs> yeah. Right, right, people that trying to want to um, keep their homesteads. Go fucking figure, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's see. Um, most of it was already owned by the federal government. Uh, Secretary of Agriculture Claude R. Wickard uh, granted use of 45,100 acres on this condition for so long as the military necessity continues. Okay, so yeah. very open-ended. Yeah, right. Um, construction was contracted to the M.M. Sunt Company and work started in December of 1942. Groves initially allocated 300000 for construction three times Oppenheimer, Heimer's in estimate uh with a planned completion date of march 15th uh, 1943 it soon became clear that the scope of project y was greater than expected and by the time sunt finished on 30 november 1943 over seven million dollars had oh, been spent Jesus. so uh that's quite the jump oh, yeah whoops somebody mis- misguided <laughs> typical there, typical government project right uh-huh. <laughs> Just uh, all of a sudden, the price of toilet seats went up, I guess. <laughs> well, um, what's that old guy? Project in, Y. Uh, oh, or, sorry. What's that old guy oh, in uh, Independence Day? Uh, Emil, is it Hirsch? Hirsch? Where he's, you wouldn't think yeah. you'd pay $500 for a screwdriver, 800 for a toilet seat, do you? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Project Y, or Los Alamos, as it would later be called, worked on calculations for the amount of material needed for the construction of the bombs and the testing site nearby for the prototype. That meant that the majority of the big brains were all at Los Alamos, including scientists and researchers, most with the greatest minds in physics 
and many were uh, that were friends or contacts of Oppenheimer's personally. So, you know, yeah. science. Nice. Well, and the thing is, you know, yeah, he brought in and, and I think I think he brought in his brother, too, for whatever reason. And that's really where when you talk and we kind of briefly talk about the spy part. We'll, we'll get into it here in a little bit. But um, I think that was the problem. I mean, he's like, oh, no, you can trust this guy. You can trust this guy. Meanwhile, he really doesn't know the like they they're in his circles, but they're not like the best of friends. They're acquaintances at best. But he didn't know them. He did have contacts out there. And I think that's, you know, Groves. That's why he picked Oppenheimer, because he knew he had contacts. He knew he was kind of in that mix, right, that he could bring these people in. And again, a lot of it was, you know, the majority, I would say, no, I'd say majority were Jewish um, cultured. Uh, so they had, if nothing else, they had a bone to pick with Hitler, which I don't fucking blame them with the Nazi thing. Uh, of course, you know, you don't want right. him to have the weapon. Um, you're seeing your family and your culture get decimated by the Nazis right and left. Um, just not ideal, right? So uh, anybody who says that the Holocaust didn't happen can fuck right off, by the way. Uh, and then All there's the that, you know. So next up is Hanford. So by December 1942, there were concerns that even Oak Ridge was too close to a major population center in the unlikely event of a major nuclear accident, which they had a few close calls, and they absolutely did. So Groves recruited DuPont in November 1942 to be the prime contractor for the construction of the new plutonium production complex. Now, I do want to state this too. Again, part of the tour, not really in our notes. Um, there's a reason DuPont was in this, uh, but there's more to DuPont than meets the eye. I know what is that transformers, but anyway, um, there's a lot there and why they got picked and their involvement into it is, uh, we might go down a little specifics, but we'll cover some of this because it's, it's interesting. Um, the Hanford site was selected because of an abundant supply of cold Columbia river water needed to cool nuclear reactors, ampro available hydroelectric power, mild climate, excellent transportation facilities and distance from major population centers. Now, let me state this too. When you say that the uh, they have cold Columbia River water, literally, you could, I might have covered this on the first episode, you could take a softball if you had a good arm and hit the water from the site. Like, it's insane. They, I think on the tour, they said they were running 30,000 gallons of water from the river every minute and cycling it through the reactor and back out to be processed. Not including the giant 20-foot fucking pool that sat behind the reactor that the fuel rods would dump into and then hang out in there today to basically cool off where they can actually handle them. And then they had, uh, outside the the Hanford project, they had this old uh, railroad train. Basically, they had the, the engine, and then they had like two or three cars. And they would take these fuel rods after they were dispensed, and they did all their shit for them. And they would have to carry them in a steel-lined cask, like a big giant fucking water tank with a lid on it that would all be pressurized, knocked down, and that shit would be shipped halfway across the country to be cleaned. Like you know, and that happened for years on the railway. Weird that you tracks, wouldn't have the you know? uh, the thing that you need to send it to to be handled close to where you're making it. Yeah, that was odd. And eventually they did. Eventually they added more. They called what they it was called the tea plant, and that's actually where they okay now they got to separate everything. And eventually Hanford you know, came up with that technique, but not for the first fucking two years of the war and making all this stuff. Um, just yeah. my God, you guys, you really wanted this bad, didn't you? I mean, it just, I don't know, just one of those things. So anyway, um, originally 5 million was set aside to purchase 430,000 acres, but due to land disputes, which we talked a little bit about, the original deal was never reached and they narrowed down what they thought they needed to build the site. 
Uh, the federal government relocated some 1,500 residents of nearby settlements as well as a Wanapum tribe uh, that actually used that area, and they lived in that area. Uh, DuPont was offered a standard, this is interesting, DuPont was offered a standard cost plus fixed fee contract, but the president of the company wanted no profit of any kind, mainly due, so there was rumors in World War One, and not rumors, they were pretty much, you know, found that, hey, it's a thing. DuPont made hand over fucking fist in World War One. number one. Um, yeah, not a all, great company. No, not at all. Not any better than fucking Procter & Gamble, if you ask me. I mean, they're all fucking sharks completely. Uh, but uh, DuPont made hand over fist with World War One, along with uh, they were involved with the weapons and the gas they made and everything else. So DuPont didn't have a good face, let's say, when they went into World Still War II. Still doesn't. Still doesn't. But I mean, definitely they, uh, not at this they time. basically destroyed a, a small town in India. Oh, like did 20 they? years ago. Oh, I didn't even hear about that. And still, oh yeah, dude, like they, the chemical plant there had like a, a fucking massive leak and like basically spilled down the hill into this uh, uh, village and just destroyed it oh, and Jesus. killed a fuck ton of people. Yeah. And uh, to this day, like they won't accept responsibility or, and here's the fun part, clean it the fuck up. Oh, nice. Like it's nice. still a so fucking still disaster there. area because they, because it would cost it. a few billion dollars to clean it up and they won't do it even though they have the fucking money. I, I just, I don't, well, you know, okay, well, there, there you go. There's DuPont for you. Um, for whatever reason, they were picked again. You know, Groves had his, had his, his reasons, I'm sure. Uh, but anyway, you know, they did the initial contract. Uh, the main guy didn't want to do that. Uh, again, due to the rumors of what was happening and asked for the proposed contract to be amended to explicitly exclude, wait for this, the company from acquiring any patent rights. This was accepted, but for Lee reasons, a nominal fee of $1 was agreed upon. So after the war, DuPont asked to be released from the contract early and had to return a 33 cents from that $1 that was never used. Um, and that was the story of, of DuPont, just because they were trying to like clean face, I guess. And I guess rumor yeah. has it on the tour that that check that we wrote to them for that $1 is hanging in Delaware at their main headquarters, framed or some shit like that. Like, oh, look at us. Look at us. Look how good we were. I, I don't know. Fucking anyway. We only profited off the war a little bit. Yeah, only a smidgen, right? So, but that's the story of DuPont, why they're involved there. Uh, the plutonium production facilities at the Hanford Engineer Works took shape with the same wartime urgency that the Oak Ridge site had. In February of 1943, uh, Colonel Mathias returned to the location he had helped select the previous December with Grove's overall authority. Of course, he was setting all this up in the backside. And uh, this uh, Mathias guy, he set up temporary headquarters. In late March, Mathias received his assignment. The three water cool production reactor, or piles, designated by the letters B, D, and F, would be built about six miles apart on the south bank of the Columbia River. The four chemical separation plants would be built in pairs at two sites nearly 10 miles south of those piles. A facility to produce slugs and perform tests would be approximately 25 or 20 miles southeast of the separation plants near Richland. Temporary quarters for construction workers would be put up at the Hanford Town site, while permanent facilities for other personnel would be located down the road in Richland, safely removed from the production and the separation plants. Well, you know, till shit hits a fan, I'm sure the yeah. clouds... W- don't have a problem traveling 40 something all miles, right? Anyway. Well, you know, at the time, I don't think they knew a whole lot no, about no, they didn't. fallout and all that fun yeah. shit. Well, and actually, I got one other thing to this, too. Um, so, life at Hanford would soon look just like its sister cities, Oak Ridge and Los Alamos. By July 1944, some 1,200 buildings had been erected and nearly 51,000 people were living in the construction camp. At its peak, the construction camp was the third most populous town 
in Washington State. And so on again on the tour, like broken drum, they had the same thing with Oak Ridge, theaters, bowling alleys, restaurants. Like they had yeah. they do these pop off dances and the like it was a thing. They made a city around what this looked like, you know, for the workers, because obviously they're going stir crazy. You know, they, they can't, they don't yeah, know yeah. what's going on, all this shit. Same thing, just to repeat, right? Rinse and repeat as other cities. And I do, so I remember, I caught this a couple times. This is local Spokane lore, whether whether it happened or not, I, I don't know. So back in the, in the right at that same time frame, the 43-1944 mark, um, this is why I say I think Hanford had a critical and they just didn't admit it. So there's newspaper reports during that time from Spokane about there was this cloud that came from nowhere, and then all of a sudden there's a bunch of people. Not only got cancer years later, but there was a bunch of moms who, um, within like a year and a half time frame, uh, had stillborn births. Like it, like it tripled when it usually when yeah. it shouldn't in this time frame. And then of course, the two to five years after, we see all these repercussions: these people getting cancer, these people dying. I'm not saying that came from Hanford, but these old newspaper clippings that you see that I read about that, I don't know. You know, you, you kind of I, – I don't think this was a perfect science. Neither one of us do. Um, so who's to say that, you know, there wasn't some uh, some fallout on the backside during this and just was never talked about. So, Well, yeah. I mean, uh, there's the whole downwinder thing that affected people even up here um, mm-hmm. from the te- – testing that they did in new mexico and in nevada um oh yeah yeah after yeah you know what i mean downwinders like, is uh, a term too by the way they use that on the tour i never heard of that term yeah. before and i'm like oh yeah okay that makes sense but i yeah yeah because the winds we were downwind from the range and it blew fallout up here like it was really bad in saint george but like up here like it still got up here in salt lake up in the uinta basin yeah um oh, and uh i remember it being kind of a controversial thing when they finally reached a settlement in like the eighties. Really, that long about it? Jesus you know what Christ. I mean? Because for a long time, the government was just like, "No, we don't know what you're talking about." Well, not only that, but you had you Dugway know, in your backyard too, like you had, you had, suing the government. No, 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 yeah. that could never happen. Well, you had Dugway eighty miles away, and what sixty eight when we did the Dugway thing, we found out you know they had a chemical leak and they killed all the livestock within like a fucking fifty mm-hmm. mile area. And oh, it wasn't enough. Even though they cut checks to the farmers, it wasn't enough to compensate. But they didn't admit it either. So yeah, yeah. Well, and that was like I remember hearing somewhere, and it was I don't know how credible the source was because I want to say it was on like an episode of UFO Hunters where they were like Dugway is Area Fifty Two <laughs> right, right, or right. something. But they were talking about the history of it, and they were saying that when it got put there, the officials that decided to put it there were like, "That's a great place to put it. Utahns are uh, really patriotic and." Um, I think they said rural, but I think read that to mean like kind of backwater, backwoodsy. Yeah, little dumb. so like yeah. If something happens and we tell them it's for like national security, whatever, they'll just shut. The the, fuck the, up. They're going to believe it, and I I completely a hundred percent see that happening. Hundred percent. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, a thing. So yeah, they I, were like, it's a good place to put it because it's far away from shit, but also if something goes wrong, like they're the type of people that won't cause a big stink yeah. about it. Jesus Christ! Way to use your uh, population, right? Yep. Damn it, dude. Good times. Good times. Speaking of good times, um, not until October 10th of 1943 did DuPont engineers drive the first stakes, marking the location of the B reactor pile building. This area immediately under the pile was excavated and carefully load tested. Uh, One of the, or sorry, once the foundations were fixed, workers began to lay the first of 390 tons Mm. of structural steel. That's a lot. 
17,400 cubic yards of concrete. Again, a fuck ton. Yep. Uh, like it's like what, like three cubic yards is enough to put a fucking garage on something like that. (laughs) Like crazy. That's a a fucking lot of concrete. Uh, 50,000 cinder blocks and 71,000 concrete bricks that went into the design of the building. And this is just one building. That's just one building. The town. Yeah. And and, and I think we, I don't, I talked to you about it earlier and I can't remember if we recorded it or not, but uh, I did find out that that, so that, uh, B reactor, literally is sitting on 23 feet of concrete. It's a 23 foot fucking concrete block. Then they put that reactor on top of that. So good God. Right. Uh, well, yeah, that's like a safety precaution, right? Oh, absolutely. That one of, the, one of yeah. the things that was like a danger at Chernobyl was that mm-hmm. the, they were about the a meltdown. There was melting down. It hit right. that, the concrete slab underneath it, but they were worried it was going to melt through that or go yeah. run off it or something. Yeah. And that's why they had to send the miners underneath it to, well, yeah, absolutely. So let me, before I forget, sorry, I don't mean to cut your side off here, but let me talk about the safety precautions bit that I did not know till I went to the two. So that's one thing we were halfway decent with was safety. So unlike maybe Chernobyl where maybe they didn't have the safety checks in place. Number one, they had a fucking robot there that they built in like the late forties and, and they have it on display. And I, if for the 1940s, looking at this robot, there was like a TV that the guy would look at. And they, I guess, had to send this robot in somewhere in the mid-50s because there was a critical. And this robot had to go and do all this shit. But they had these safety precautions. So not only was, you know, they had it sitting on that concrete because they're worried about that meltdown. But then they also had um, these huge hoppers above the, um, um, the reactor itself. And they were full of these tiny little balls made of boron. And so if it got too hot too quick, they couldn't control it, they'd release these hoppers and they'd dump these hoppers, like pachinko, almost, like all down inside all these tubes. And the boron is supposed to neutralize the neutrons, basically, and kind of stop the reaction. And then the last, last, like, ultimate thing, they had these giant things called accumulators. And I walked them, and they're, they're, like, fucking 20 feet wide. They're a big round shaker of rock is what they are. And they were set on a magnetic, electric magnetic lock. So they would basically they would be attached to that lock, and so if for some reason that um, site lost power, which was funny, one of the guys that were doing the tour, uh, he said, which is irony at its finest. Remember Japanese? So remember they used to have these weird, um, very rudimentary uh, bombs that were on balloons, and they would just send them out. And they would basically get tied up in power lines and all this other shit. And this is during the war. Like, the Japanese did this. Yeah. These little balloons, they had these bombs on them, and they would just send them our way, and they would get wrapped up in our... The whole, the hope, obviously, is to knock down our infrastructure and our grit is what their hope was. Well, one of those balloons evidently got tied up into one of the Hanford electrical lines and <laughs> shut down the thing. So, basically, when power is shut and it's isolated these little mag locks at these huge round fucking things of rock these accumulators were they would lose power causing them to break away drop down and as they drop down they basically would flood the entire reactor with water like that that was your safety like a huge fucking yeah. three buckets of rocks that were attached to this fucking it just the shit was crazy at the tour when they science. were talking about this. yeah science at its, at its foremost right so anyway i digress but just just interesting Oh, anyway, uh, that is interesting. So another interesting thing is by early 1944, a windowless concrete monolith towered 120 feet above the desert. Assembly of the building itself began in February. The cast iron base of the thermal and biological shields around the building were completed by mid-May. 
It took another month to lay the graphite blocks within the shield and install the top shield and two months to wire and pipe the pile and connect it to various monitoring and control devices. By July 1944, not only was the B reactor nearing completion, but the second D reactor was about halfway finished as well. Given how new all of these technological systems were, no one knew whether they would even work. Jesus uh, Christ. That's, you know, all that, I just guess. to go, okay, let's hope. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, on, on September 13th, 1944, Enrico Fermi placed the first slug in the pile at B reactor and loading slugs and taking measurements lasted two weeks. At 3 a.m. on September 27th, the pile ran without incident at a power level higher than any previous fission chain reaction, though only at a fraction of design capacity. Everything looked to be working better than planned until the power level began falling after three hours. It fell continuously until the pile ceased operating entirely on the evening of the 28th. By the next morning, the reaction began again, reached the previous day's level, then dropped. Hanford scientists were at a loss as to why, but DuPont stepped in with some of their knowledge and found xenon poisoning to be the culprit. Xenon, a fission byproduct, gradually built up and absorbed neutrons that were needed to sustain the chain reaction. With shutdown, the xenon decayed, neutron flow resumed, and the pile started up again. Despite the objections of some scientists who complained of DuPont's excessive caution, <laughs> that's uh, probably a first and <laughs> right, probably a last. Exactly. There's, there's uh, more to this. Yeah. <laughs> the company had installed a large number of extra tubes. Uh, this design feature meant that the pile and B reactor could be expanded to reach a power level sufficient to overwhelm the xenon poisoning. Success was achieved when the first irradiated slugs were discharged from B reactor on Christmas Day, 1944. Oh, man. <laughs> Merry, Christmas, Merry Christmas, people. Merry Christmas. By the end of January 1945, the highly purified plutonium underwent further concentration in the completed chemical isolation building where remaining impurities were removed successfully. Los Alamos received its first plutonium from Hanford on February 2nd, while it was still by no means clear that enough plutonium could be produced to use in bombs by the war's end, Hanford was... While it was still by no means clear that enough plutonium could be pro- produced for use in bombs by the war's end, only two years had passed since Matthias first set up his temporary headquarters on the banks of the Columbia River, at the end of the day, the Hanford site constructed and operated the world's first nuclear production recorder rec- reactors that produced the plutonium used in the Trinity test and in atomic bomb dropped on Nagasaki, Japan in August 9th, 1945. Ugh, yeah. So I did learn some background on that, which was interesting. So when you talk about these tubes, right? So evidently, um, they started building this thing, and the guy that engineered, I can't remember his name now, but he engineered this whole thing, which, again, is amazing. How do you fucking engineer something that you don't know? Like, we don't know. We have no fucking clue, but we're going to go, okay, we're going to build this, and this will do this. To me, that's just mind-boggling, first of all. So he had designed it originally with 1,500 tubes. And then uh, one of the brainiacs at DuPont, they're going over this research, and they were going over... Um, because I, I can't remember where we covered it in Chicago, the guy made a miniature version of a pile reactor, right? Just a tiny little, he stacked up some graphite. It's like 20 feet, whatever have you just to test it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You could do this and this is how you do it. So off those, um, measurements that they did this this dupont guy behind the curtains was like oh wait a minute this doesn't look good he says what because they were talking about xenon poisoning then 
So DuPont went in. This guy said, well, let's go ahead and add more tubes. And I guess the engineer lost his shit. Like, you know, fuck you. I built this. I get paid to do this. 1,500 tubes is plenty. And they went back and forth for a while till finally DuPont won and said, oh, no, you know, we really think you should fucking do 500 tubes. So when this happened and they hold xenon and then they utilize the extra tubes to overcome the poisoning, guess what? All the other reactors, no questions asked. Put as many tubes as you want in this fucking thing. <laughs> Otherwise, they would have been fucked. I mean, if they if they would if Dupont would have lost the argument and they wouldn't uh, they went by the engineer's standards, th- this all this money and all this work and everything around it would have went to fucking nothing because it wouldn't have worked. I mean, yeah. just shit like that is like, man, you guys, how fucking lucky can you be? I, I guess weirdly to say that's luck, but just I, I don't know. So that's a background. On those tubes and uh, interesting that they put those in. But anyway, um, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to keep covered uh, some of the other smaller sites and then get into the actual uh, working on the bomb itself. So stand by, everybody. Believe in UFOs? Felt that chill up your spine that you just can't explain? Contemplate the other side of reality. Do you shake your head at the world that seems to have lost its common sense? Well, look no further than Strange Uncles. Find them on all podcast platforms and call their hotline to tell your side of reality at 801-252-6945. Open the gates. All right, and we are back. So uh, we mentioned uh, earlier that there were other sites, over 100 actually, that was involved in one form or another. But there were also various Canada sites involved, not only for the Alliance, but for the Canadians. They had something that couldn't be found in the United States, and that was heavy water. So this was needed to help with the process. So some technical stuff here, and fucking fast forward two minutes or you can listen to it. But we're going to break down kind of lengthy, lame in terms of how this whole process works so you can understand. Um, we're not going to do the whole process. We'll, we'll do this here. So natural uranium consists of 99.3% uranium-238 and 0.7% uranium-235, but only the latter is fissile. So the chemically identical uranium-235 had to be physically separated from the more plentiful isotope, right? Up with us so far? Okay. So various methods were considered for uranium enrichment, most of which was carried out at Oak Ridge. The most obvious technology, the centrifuge, failed, but the electromagnetic separation, gaseous diffusion, and thermal diffusion technologies were all successful and actually contributed to the project, so it's a good thing. Uh, In February 1943, Groves came up with the idea using the output of some plants as an input for others. So the second part of this was the plutonium. The second line of development pursued by the Manhattan Project used a fissile element plutonium for this thing. Um, Although small amounts of plutonium exist in nature, the best way to obtain large quantities of the element is in a nuclear reactor where natural uranium is bombarded by neutrons. Then the uranium-238 is turned into uranium-239, which rapidly decays, I think like two minutes they said, or three minutes on the tour. Oh, wow. Um, And then first, and then it turns into a neptunium, which I've never heard of, 239, and that's like a five or six minute decaying process. And then it blossoms, if you will, into plutonium-239. Um, only a small amount of uranium-238 will be transformed. So the plutonium must be chemically separated from the re- remaining uranium uh, from any initial impurities and from fission products. Uh, this is where you have nuclear vision. 
uh, pretty much in a nutshell. So they had to go through all these stages that changes from this to this to this in order to get that plutonium we need, um, which was a lot more energy efficient, a lot more plentiful, a lot more weaponized than uranium ever could be. So there you have it. And in a nutshell, again, there's more to a it. So we're not process, scientists. Really. <laughs> right. Yeah. Again, we're not fucking, this isn't Bill Nye. I'm just saying, want to kind of lay that down. Very interesting. And again, the back of my mind, I'm thinking, how the fuck did they find that out? Who was want? Uh, just anyway, anyway, just crazy shit. So very, yeah. Um, the Manhattan project led to the development of two types of atomic bombs, both developed concurrently during the war. A relatively simple gun-type fission weapon and the more complex implosion-type bomb. The Thin Man gun-type design proved impractical to use with plutonium, so a simpler gun-type design called Little Boy was developed that used the uranium-235. The Fat Man plutonium implosion-type weapon was developed by the Los Alamos Laboratory. On the flip side, the project was also charged with gathering intelligence on the German nuclear nuclear project uh, through Operation Alsace, Manhattan Project personnel served in Europe, sometimes behind enemy lines where they gathered nuclear materials and documents and rounded up German scientists. Despite the Manhattan Project's tight security, Soviet spies penetrated the program anyway. Oh, yeah. Ah, uh, yes. Always a uh, one of <laughs> One of the more infamous spies was Klaus Fuchs, a member of the British mission who played an important part at Los Alamos. In a 1950 investigation, it was found just how much he was involved in and what info he passed on, so much so that it crippled the United States nuclear cooperation with Britain and Canada. Uh, other spies would be found as well, such as Harry Gold, David Greenglass, and Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Other spies like George Koval and Theodore Hall would remain unknown as spies literally for decades to come. Jesus. Then the time came to test in real time. In March 1944, planning for the test was assigned to uh, Kenneth Bainbridge, a professor of physics at Harvard. Bainbridge selected the Alamogordo Army Field as the test or as the site for the test, which was roughly 300 miles from Los Alamos. Bainbridge worked with Captain Samuel P. Davalos on the construction of the Trinity Base Camp and its facilities, which included barracks, warehouses, workshops, and explosive magazines, and a commissary. Of course. the Yeah, like, you know, it's a little yeah, base. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the problem with this was the testing itself. Groves didn't want to have to be the one to explain why a billion dollars that would take to do the Trinity test was necessary, which I don't blame him, especially with how much this has already cost. No, no shit, um, right? Uh, Oppenheimer insisted that an actual nuclear detonation had to be performed to ensure the math behind everything and the effectiveness of the newfound nuclear power. However, they did create a cylindrical vessel codenamed Jumbo to recover the active material in the event that something went south. Uh, by the time it arrived, however, confidence in the implosion method was high enough and the availability of plutonium was sufficient that Oppenheimer decided not to use it, Jumbo. Instead, it was placed atop a steel tower 800 yards from the weapon as a rough measure of how powerful the explosion would be. Jumbo survived, although its tower did not, uh, adding to the belief that Jumbo would have successfully contained a fizzled explosion. A uh, pre-test explosion was conducted on 7 May 1945 to calibrate the instruments. A wooden test platform was erected 800 yards from ground zero and piled with 100 short tons of TNT 
spiked with nuclear fission products in the form of an irradiated uranium slug from Hanford, which was dissolved and poured into tubing inside of the explosive. Sounds real safe. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, All this is like, (laughs) hey, you're kind of shaky there, Jim. What do you (laughs) can we get somebody else to do this? Fuck. Yeah. On 16 July 1945, the Trinity test was performed, and needless to say, it was a success. Now the decision would be on to the higher-ups, namely Truman, to figure out if we really wanted to use the weapon of mass destruction that we created, or just tease the other side so that uh, so they knew we had under our belts. Hmm. When asked about the Trinity test later, Oppenheimer quoted a line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, now I have become death to destroyer of worlds. Um, and speaking of quotes during the Trinity test, I want to say it was Bainbridge that was quoted as saying, and now we're all sons of bitches or something like that. I, I uh, think I stumbled on that. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of quotes on here. Yeah. But I mean, can you imagine like you at the same time? I mean, you created this and, and it, it it is like a the the most world profound thing to ever do. Like it unlocked potential we've never, ever seen in human history. But knowing that you're going to possibly kill thousands and thousands and thousands of people to end a war that really should have been ended anyway. But my God. Yeah. How do you, you know, I, I'm sure there's some sleepless nights there. I mean, damn. Well, and it's like, it's pretty rare that you develop a weapon, especially first of its kind like that, that somebody somewhere doesn't want to use. Oh, yeah. You know, 100%. Just to, yeah. Just to see, if, you know, like, yep. like not having it and having the threat of it isn't enough. You, got to use it is which it, it's a, a it's a catch 22 in that situation yep. i think you know uh, it, what i yep. mean it's a double-edged sword and, and i you know honestly i can't say you know we can do a wrap-up after this whole thing is done but uh, i i'm still on the fence with with this in general but anyway we talk about it but uh to go on with it so at the potsdam conference in germany uh, truman was informed that the trinity test had been successful he, in turn, told Stalin that the U.S. had a new superweapon without giving any details. This would be the very first communication regarding the bomb, but Stalin already knew due to his network of spies. So there's that. Uh, mass destruction human lives could have been spared if the Japanese would have agreed to the Potsdam Declaration. So some background on this, because I, I didn't really know the reason why. I mean, I know Truman wanted to, hey, look, we need to end war, and this is how we're going to end it. But I, I didn't know this portion. I'm not sure if you did or not. So some background on this uh, declaration, right? So the Potsdam Declaration, or the Proclamation Defining Terms for Japanese Surrender, yeah, lengthy, was a statement that called for the surrender of all Japanese armed forces during World War II. On July 26, 1945, Harry S. Truman, Winston Churchill, and chairman of China at the time, Chiang Kai-shek, issued the document which outlined the terms of surrender for the Empire of Japan. It stated, quote, If Japan did not surrender, it would face prompt and utter destruction. End quote. Needless to say, Japan gave them the finger, and the rest is history. So, on 6th of August, 1945, the Nola Gay, a Boeing B-29 superfortress of the 393rd Bombardment Squadron, lifted off from the north field with a little boy in its bomb bay. Hiroshima, the headquarters of the 2nd General Army and 5th Division, as well as a port of embarkation, was the primary target, with Kakura and Nagasaki as alternatives, just in case. The bomb was actually assembled in the air, which, again, is fucking crazy, to minimize the risk of a nuclear explosion in the event of a crash during takeoff. Could you fucking imagine if that happened? I mean, my God, egg on our faces, right? Damn. Ugh. The bomb detonated at an altitude of 1,750 feet with a blast that was later estimated to be the equivalent of 13 kilotons of TNT. 
An area of approximately 4.7 square miles was utterly destroyed. Japanese officials determined that 69% of Hiroshima's buildings were destroyed and another 6-7% damaged. At about 70,000-80,000 people, of whom 20,000 were Japanese combatants and 20,000 were Korean slave laborers, or roughly some 30% of the population of Hiroshima, were killed immediately and another 70,000 injured soon afterward. Damn. There's that. Yep. Yay, yeah. war. Um, we'll come back to this. Okay. I've got some shit to say about okay. all of that. Yeah. Um, on the morning of 9th August 1945, uh, the boxcar, a second B-29 piloted by the 393rd bombs, Bombardment Squadron Commander Major Charles W. Sweeney, lifted off with a fat man on board. I love the nicknames for the bombs, though. Jesus they are pretty Christ. funny. Um yeah. With uh, Kakura as the primary target, uh, Sweeney took off with weapons already armed, but with the electrical safety plugs still engaged. So, uh, whatever. Uh, oops. Um, <laughs> when they reached Kakura, they found cloud cover had obscured the city, prohibiting the visual attack required by orders. After three runs and with fuel running low, they headed for the secondary target, target Nagasaki. Ashworth decided that a Radar approach would be used if the target was obscured, but at last minute break in the cloud cover over Nagasaki allowed a visual approach to be ordered. Uh, lucky Nagasaki, I guess. Yeah, right. Jesus. Uh, Fat Man was dropped over the city's industrial valley midway between the Mitsubishi Steel and Arms Works in the south and the Mitsubishi Urakami Ordnance Works in the north. The resulting explosion had a blast yield equivalent to 21 Jesus kilotons of Christ. TNT. Uh, roughly the same as the Trinity blast. That's a, that's a lot. Um, it was confined. However, the blast was confined to the Yurikami Valley and a major portion of the city was protected by the intervening hills, resulting in destruction of about 44% of the city. So a little geography, uh, spared them from some of, yeah, some right. of the, so, so the devastation. Uh, destruction power yeah. of the bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the bombing also crippled the city's industrial production extensively and killed around 28,000 Japanese industrial workers and 150 Japanese soldiers. Just 150, or is that supposed to be like... 150. Uh, uh, no, I, you know, I wow. proofread that. Yeah, so the, the, it, it was more devastation. Hiroshima caused more devastation because of the headquarters than Nagasaki did as far as the military with the Japanese. So that yeah, is, number yeah. is accurate. But their whole thing for Nagasaki was destroying the the plant, you know, like the Mitsubishi plants. And the, that was, look, they knocked that shit down. They're fucked. They can't make anything. They can't do anything. That really was a focus for Nagasaki versus Hiroshima. Yeah. It was just fucking complete devastation because there was just a lot of shit off, coming out of Hiroshima. Yeah, basically. So um, overall, an estimated 35 to 40,000 people were killed and 60,000 injured. Groves expected to have another attack atomic bomb ready for use on the 19th of August with three more in September and possibly three more in October on August 10th. Truman secretly requested that additional atomic bombs not be dropped on Japan without his express on his own authority on August 13th, mm -hmm. uh, which is today. Oh, uh, interesting. Uh, um, the necessity of the scientists directly responsible or sorry, the necessity of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki became a sore subject throughout the world, as well as the scientists directly responsible for the making of weapons, including Oppenheimer. 
A petition was drafted in July 1945 and signed by a dozen of scientists working on the Manhattan Project as a late attempt at warning President Harry S. Truman about his responsibility in using such weapons. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, yeah. And again, I think we'll circle back. I, I'd like to know your your hindsights on that. Um, but we'll we're yeah. gonna wrap up with this whole thing. So another one of the project's consequences was the creation of terrifying arsenals of nuclear weapons. So, yeah, here, here we go. Now the arms race truly began, began as different sides, mainly Russia and the United States, began stockpiling nuclear weapons far more powerful than those dropped on Japan and believe us when we say that that was a fucking terrible childhood to live through, just saying. And we talked about this, I think, a, a couple times in different podcasts of, yeah, you were kind of in the same era, like, you know, hiding underneath your desk. And the day after tomorrow came out on TV on like fucking ABC. And yeah, it, it I remember the day the after tomorrow, uh, missed duck and cover. That was a little bit before my time, but like yeah. all of the uh, like schools in the part of the valley that i grew up in they all had fallout shelters in yep. them, and they were yep. all, like, still like clearly marked like yeah. head yeah. this way if something like that happens right you right know? i remember looking out my like window and we'd like look over the valley and and literally my head in my head i'm thinking and this again this is the movie didn't fucking help anybody but uh i, I was just like looking up the sky waiting for a missile to fucking drop like i spent almost every fucking day for like months just staring out the window waiting for somebody to fucking bomb us. It it was the weirdest fucking feeling that that's what I'm scared of. I'm not scared of bears or fucking uh, everything else a Montana kid should be scared of. I'm scared of a fucking nuclear bomb (laughs) dropping on my backyard. And, you know, in Montana, we had tons of um, underground missile bases all over. Same thing with Eastern Washington because they're they're rural. Um, They're going to, of course, obviously, the big cities are going to be pinpointed first. So their thought was, okay, let's put these things where nobody is. So just in case they don't get blocked and we can cause uh, mass nuclear, you know, and wipe the world clean, basically, is what would happen. Just just insane, you know, for where it came from. Anyway, but with all that being said, um, I digress, reminiscing, but there is a little bit of a bright side, we think. Uh, due to the work and the research of atomic energy, um, some cool things happen. And, and we most of us know this. After the war, the tests were still done in this field uh, to better understand nuclear energy. This led to development of the network of national laboratories, supported medical research into radiology, and found actually laid the foundations for the nuclear navy. So it maintained control over American atomic weapons research and production until the formation of the United States Atomic Energy Commission in 1947. As awful as the Manhattan Project was, at the time we thought it was absolutely needed to end the war, at least some of us did. Uh, But what amazes us is the brains behind the project and just how many top scientists were collaborating on such a high streamlined level to actually create said end product. Um, Despite what you may think about nuclear weapons, it is perhaps the most amazing feats in human history to learn how to harness atomic energy, despite Oppenheimer and his cohorts not 100% sure when the bombs went off that the chain reaction uh, would stop them, basically igniting our entire atmosphere like we talked about earlier. Um, I, guess, I guess everybody needs a gamble, right? So we're actually yeah, going to leave you uh, with a quote from Oppenheimer himself, and this was actually after uh, the bombs were dropped. Um, quote, I believe that through discipline, we can learn to preserve what is essential to our happiness in more and more adverse circumstances and to abandon with simplicity that would else else uh, have seemed to us indispensable that we come a little to see the world without the gross distortion of personal desire and in seeing it so accept more easily our earthly privatization uh, in its earthly horror. But because I believe that the reward of discipline is greater than its immediate objective, I would not have you think that discipline without objective is possible. 
In its nature, discipline involves the subjection of the soul to some perhaps minor end, and that end must be real, if the discipline is not to be factitious. Therefore, I think that all things which evoke discipline, study, our duties to men and to the commonwealth, war and personal hardship, and even the need for sustenance, ought to be greeted by us by profound gratitude, for only through them can we attain to the least detachment, and only so can we know peace. Yeah, there there you go. There you go. Um, you had thoughts, man. Yeah, so like going back to the whole Potsdam Declaration and uh, did we really need to drop the bombs or not, right? Mm. Um, so there's there are a lot of people, and, and this is all... So at some point it all becomes propaganda, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, to like justify or whatever, you know, and, and hindsight's twenty twenty. you know, who knows what would have really happened other than what really did happen. Right. right. But um, so a lot of people at the time and since then have been told that like, there was no way Japan was going to surrender. If we had to invade actual homeland Japan, it was going to be incredibly costly in in, you know, lives and money. Um, they were estimating hundreds of thousands, if not like a million dead, if I remember right. Um, like they were expecting a lot of, they were like basically Iwo Jima on steroids. Right. Yeah. Um, because you know, the Japanese government for the entirety of the war had been telling, uh, the entire populace, like if we get invaded, they're going to like rape and kill everyone. So everyone needs to fight down to the last like child. Right. Um, so there's all this and, and, uh, and so for a long time, like when I was growing up, it was like, well, no, actually we had to do that to say it. We like as bad as that was, it, it saved more lives than it destroyed in the process. Right. 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 That's what we all got told growing up. But, uh, recent historical analysis or more recent anyways is saying that like actually Japan was pretty much on the brink of surrender anyway. Uh, that we basically crippled yeah. their economy, crippled most of their. Uh, war infrastructure at that point you mm-hmm. know and like after you know years and years of war uh they were they were running out of shit and people and stuff and that the only reason they didn't agree to the potsdam declaration was that it, we included that they had to give up the institution of the emperor um and that's why they wouldn't surrender and that if we had said you can keep the emperor, they would have been like, okay, fine, we're done. That's like the oh, one condition. Interesting, need, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and the fucked up part is that after they dropped the bombs, they ended up uh, letting they ended up taking that out of the terms anyway. So, oh, uh, well, I mean, and, I know that, that's what yeah facilitated the actual surrender was that they after they dropped the bombs, they were like surrender, and they were like, eh, and they were like, you can keep the emperor, and they were like, all right, done. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, so you get that weird like catch 22 right of like well we don't know because it didn't happen but but what if if they had said okay surrender you can keep the emperor the institution of the emperor whatever um but other than that like everything else is the same would they have had to drop the bombs you know well and and that's a tough one because like if they if that's the case, that fucking really sucks. It, it absolutely you know? does. And here's the other side to it. And again, just because we're greedy human beings, billions of dollars spent on doing this, thousands of people, their time, their efforts, pulling them from their families, putting the secrecies in place, doing this thing, not using the bomb, 
I feel Truman and or maybe other cohorts around him would say, oh, wait a minute. We spent all this money. We did. We basically built these cities. If we don't have something come from the end of that, then we're pretty much going to have egg on our faces. I don't know if that is some of that, but being like military mindset, I, I think that probably had something to say about it too. Like we have to drop this probably. because look what we did. Look at well, the that, money we and we have in. to prove that we have it and it works right. because right. they were, uh, even though after Operation Barbarossa, when Hitler turned on Stalin and then Stalin decided to join up with the Allies, like things between the West and the Soviet Union were always uh, already and, like yeah. all of the yeah. all of the Allied generals were always looking at at the Soviet Union like all right, well once we get rid of Hitler, that's next, you yeah. know, yeah. Yep. So, uh, yeah. so I think that was part of it too, is like, we have to, we can't just say we have to have it. We have to like show right. it's like testing the death star on Alderaan. Right. Yeah. Like, well, and it's crazy too, because I know, you know, obviously after the war, you know, we wrote basically Japan's constitution for them, you know, to make yeah. sure that they weren't going to do that shit again. And I remember when I was in Japan and we, you know, we do, we'd have like sister ships, right? So we'd, um, you know, we'd invite some Japanese on our ship. We were, we get invited to their ship and, and we just like walk, we do competitions, things like that. Just, uh, you know, reaching the Ollie branch across the countries type thing. And again, at this point, yeah. Japan is a very noble, um, peaceful, you know, like the pe- that the people really are, they really are like the whole, the, the atmosphere in Japan is it, it's night and day from what it was in World War II, you know, absolutely. But even walking the ships and seeing some of the technology and some of the things that they had, even though they weren't, called a the Japanese Navy because they weren't allowed to have any kind of a military group yeah, or military it was like a territorial it. defense force or something. Yeah, right? it was some weird neutral fucking hippy dippy name they had to go by. Boy, dude, they had some shit on their ships. And it was a lot more advanced than our stuff. And I don't know. You know, it's just something to be said about that. Like what would history look like if it didn't? But boy, I, I, you know, everything from, you know, extra tubes in the first reactor to the, to Oppenheimer being picked to that, like that, so many things could have gone wrong in the three to what, four years of Manhattan project to the bomb dropped. So many things could have went crazy. So many things could have went fucking sideways. And, and for whatever reason they didn't. And, and that is just, to me, that's, that's, I'm in awe. I'm in awe that this actually came. I'm surprised that they didn't have as many fucking spies as they did. I'm surprised that they didn't have the shit fucking go south. The bomb never worked or other people got, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm amazed that that didn't happen in this whole fucking thing, you know, just crazy. Well, funny, funny side note about the spies is, uh, uh, a lot of the reasons for a lot of the access that those spies got was just how fucking stupid, British government ran. Oh, oh yeah. And probably Absolutely. still does where it was like one of their top spies was only one of their top spies because he was like an aristocrat. Yeah. And that's yeah. how he got his job was like his dad yeah. knew somebody or like family name or whatever. Yeah. And that dude ended up being the guy that was like telling the Soviets everything. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was um, crazy. Well, and they were already yeah, testing, dude. you know, I, I mean, crazy fucking story. I mean, like I said, I, you know, I know we went on and on a little, hopefully not too much about the tour and hopefully not too much about this and that. But um, I think we captured most of this in a nutshell. I feel like we needed to do a part two or just because of everything involved. And again, this is history. Anybody can look this up. But it's the little tiny stuff that you put inside here that we just kind of wrapped everything up between, you know, breaking down the sites, breaking down the numbers, breaking down, you know, what it took to build a city and, and literally like a building every 30 minutes. Holy shit. 
that is some fucking civil yeah. engineering efforts right there. Like that, hands down, that's just amazing in its own right, you know, let alone. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, even house builders now, fuck, they got plans, they got house builds, they got blueprints. It takes them months to get a fucking house off the ground. These fuckers are doing it in 30 minutes. It just is yeah. mind boggling, you know? So anyway, everybody, that well, I mean, was that's Manhattan the sheer project, scope you know? of like the amount of people they had working on it too, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. A lot of that. So anyway, yeah. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, again, you know, if you have any feedback, we missed something or whatever have you, or you just, Hey, maybe you want to pat us on the back. That would be cool too. You can write us at strangejungles at gmail.com. Um, let us know what you think and we can go from there. Um, how are we looking on socials, brother? We are, uh, at strange uncles podcast on Facebook and Instagram. We are at strange uncles on Twitter. I refuse to call it X. Uh, we <laughs> it's so are fucking devastating ever. Yeah, that, fuck that guy. Uh, we uh, we have a YouTube channel. We are on Patreon at patreon.com slash strangeuncles. Give us your money. Mm. Um, hmm. I think that's about it. Oh, there you go. Yeah, no, I think so I think too. I got him. Cool. So, uh, you know, we'll have more write-ups. So we're going to try and get some guests lined up again. You know, the guest thing, uh, just because of my time is a little shifty. It's really, it's been hard as of late to actually... Uh, confirm for a guest just because we want to be careful of their time and respectful of their time. And, and it's tough to do nowadays. We're actually recording this on a Sunday. Usually we record on a Thursday. It just, sometimes things don't work, but, um, but stand by, you know, we'll see if we can't get that going. Um, patrons remember there'll be a companion piece to uh, both these two parters for this. Um, and it's just basically me doing the tour. I think the recordings came out. Okay. Um, I, depending on how much I got, I might break that into a two part companion piece, but, um, but let me know. So stand by for that. Probably, uh, Maybe a week after this drops, after the last one drops. And, uh, yeah, I don't have anything else, man. So thank you. Appreciate your time. And close the gates.